We're going to be in Genesis 21 again. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into it. Uh, God, we thank you for uh, our time tonight. I, I pray that as we, um, as we dig into the Word and we continue to look at, uh, specifically tonight, what it means to be children of the promise, um, pray you'd help us to understand more what that means. It is so complex, and it has to do with promises that are laced all throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, and the promise has to do with your plan from before time began. And so it is no light uh, subject we're looking at tonight uh, that we've encountered in Genesis 21. And so I pray that you would allow us uh, wisdom, discernment, insight, um, good conversation, and just a, a real ability to embrace your design and your plan. God, we pray that, uh, as it seems like everyone I've talked to this week is just crazy busy and fairly stressed out and definitely tired, uh, I pray that tonight none of those things would, uh, would be distractions, but that tonight we would be encouraged and, uh, and energized uh, as we uh, engage the Word. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your promises. I pray that tonight as we study those promises, we'd, be, we'd become even more thankful, uh, and we thank you that you never break your promises. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, open up to Genesis 21. Beginning. In Genesis 21, we... Or, is it 20? No, it's 21. Uh, we have engaged... Uh, a section of scripture where we're, we're continuing to see the ups and downs of God's people and seeing how uh, sometimes they're very faithful, sometimes they seem like complete boneheads, uh, sometimes they make good decisions, sometimes they make bad decisions. And um, we, we are keying in specifically on the life of Abraham and how God is using Abraham for his eternal purposes. And so in Genesis 21, we've run into a, uh, an issue, and I'll just go ahead and read through this. Uh, Isaac has been born, and this is a big party that they're throwing, and it says the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman. Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Uh, we have uh, talked a lot about this uh, section of uh, Scripture, and, and we're continuing tonight talking about um, the response to that little phrase. What is the little phrase we've been looking at that has turned out to have huge, historical, global, timeless significance? What's the phrase we've been looking at? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's the first time we engage it. It's something that's very important through all the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the book of Romans. It's really drawn out. But that little phrase that's used here, God is saying, do what your wife says, because this is part of my plan, not because I'm scared of her, but because this is part of my plan. Do what she says, uh, because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so what are the three different responses to this uh, that we have looked at? There were three responses to this phrase. You could probably just guess what one of them is and you'd be right. So. Yes. And where did they come up with that? The Muslim responses through Ishmael. Where did that come from? Yes. What, <laughs> do you see Muhammad? That's very good. That was so well said. Um, yeah. Uh, through Muhammad who um, went into a trance-like state, said he received a word from the angel Gabriel from the Lord and said that, in fact, um, it is Ishmael and not Isaac. And so that would be looking at what God says through Isaac's here often being named and saying, no, it's the total opposite, that's not true. So that's the first response. What was the second response? There's the Christian response. What was the one we talked about right before that? And then we'll get into that one. Yeah, the means. And, and who was guilty of that here in the Old Testament? The Jews, right? 
the, the, the ethnic Israelites here. They were guilty of, see, we, we looked at it in, in, uh, in a view that it, Isaac was the means in which God was carrying out his, his plan. And so they got so focused on Isaac and so focused on the law that um, there was a real absence of a focus on God, which was very necessary because this is all, it's not about Isaac, it's not about Ishmael, it's the God of Isaac, uh, the God who has put this whole thing in plan. And so we see last week that um, we talked about that prayer that's mentioned, um, that Jewish prayer that's mentioned three times daily, and it's all about the kingdom here and, the, and people here, and it's absent of anything really having to do with God. And that's what they were guilty of here, is that the law and everything else took them in a direction uh, away really from God. And so then we looked at this third response, which was the response that we have that our only hope in redemption, our only hope in eternal salvation is the God of the promise. And so that's what we're focusing on tonight, and we're looking tonight at what it means to be children of the promise. Um, what are some themes that we've seen in Genesis so far, just to make sure we're on the same page? Themes that have come up in Genesis. Bonehead mistakes. Any other themes? Is that it? Faith. God has a plan. What else? What's the theme about shelving the plan? Yeah, it never works out well. Anytime you take God's plan, one, he has a plan. Two, when you take that plan and you shelve it, it never works out well. These are these themes that we're seeing. And so we looked at the Jewish response, we've looked at the Muslim response, tonight we're really looking at this Christian response that um, we see that uh, we're going to pick up on what we looked at last week in Romans 4 um, that we sprung to. So go ahead and turn over to Romans 4 and we'll, we'll get into this. We're looking at what it means to be children of the promise. In, in Romans 4, verses 20 through 21, go ahead and turn there, Romans 4, 20 through 21. And tonight we're going to be hitting a lot of pieces of scripture, so if you take notes, um, which... Everyone should take notes all the time. It's good to take notes. Um, even if it's a Bible study, if it's a sermon, whatever, take notes. Uh, if you're taking notes, which now if you're not, you should feel guilty, write down a lot of these verses because they're, they're things that we need to go back to because they're things that we really need to become acquainted with. That's what we're looking at tonight. So Romans 4, 20 through 21 says about Abraham, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, as those who are heirs of Abraham, children of the promise, we should see how Abraham lived here. And so we see no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Turn just a page over, I think, two pages over, the page over, to Romans 9. Carefully turn to Romans 9, uh, verses 6 through 8. We see here that Paul has just said he's, he has anguish, unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart because of his Israelite kinsmen who, who don't believe rightly, who are cut off from God. And here we see in Romans 9, verses 6 through 8, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, here we see the phrase again, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And that's our focus tonight. What in the world does it mean to be children of the promise? So, taking these two sections of Scripture into account, you can flip back and forth looking at them. Romans 4, 20-21, Romans 9, 6-8. What does it mean to grow strong in faith? Just use the scripture to answer the question. What does it mean to grow strong in faith? Yeah, to believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And what's another way of saying what he says he's going to do? His what? His will? His promise? Yes, yes, okay. Now, is it enough to be somewhat convinced that God is able to do what he promised? This is one of those stupid questions. No, it's not enough to be somewhat convinced. It says be fully convinced. It says, um, notice trust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, who are counted 
as Abraham's offspring in this section. Talking about offspring and genealogy becomes odd sometimes, awkward. But children of the promise, that's exactly right. Who are counted as Abraham's offspring? The children of the promise. Why is this significant? We've been talking about it for the last few weeks, just in your words. Why is this significant? Yes. Yes. Yes, we have to understand it's through Isaac. And, and it's Isaac, it's not a matter of it's, it's Isaac in the flesh. It's a matter of the promise was through Isaac. So we're tracing through Isaac as that vehicle back to the promise of God. And this is significant. A side note here, the, the point is, is it's safe to say that being the offspring of Abraham is a big deal. Anyone who believes Abraham existed and sees the life of Abraham knows that it's a very significant thing to be the offspring of Abraham. I was reading this week, and I, I did not know this, even the Rastafarians, are, are we all familiar with the Rastafarians? Okay, very familiar, I'm sure. Even the Rastafarians make the point, uh, they, they feel that Africa, particularly Ethiopia, is the true Zion, and that they're the true children of Israel. So I'm sitting here reading all this thinking, man, everyone, Isaac, man, they want to be the children of Abraham. Ishmael, the Muslims, they want to be the children of Abraham. I was like, even the Rastafarians, they want to be the children of Abraham, believing they're the true Israel. They just believe that Africa and Ethiopia are uh, the true Zion. So it's safe to say, anyway, that was a total side note. It just blew me away when I read that, that it's a big deal to be the offspring of Abraham because of the promises and the covenant associated with that because it all leads to God. Now, the offspring of Abraham are the children of the promise. That's, we're getting at that tonight. The offspring of Abraham, the true offspring of Abraham, true Israelites, are the children of the promise. Now tell me this, what fuels the children of the promise? What fuels the children? As the children of the promise are living, again, children of the promise, everyone in this room, hopefully children of the promise. What fuels the children of the promise in daily life, daily decisions, going through hardship, whatever. What fuels the children of the promise? God's plan yeah, God's plan being acted out, which he, he, he communicates through what? Holy Spirit and his promises. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a big deal. Here, the children, of the, God, the children of God are fueled by the promises of God. If we're children of the promise, we are fueled by the promises of God. So, we must ask ourselves, as, we, as we've read these pieces of Scripture before, we ask ourselves, do we waver concerning the promises of God? And like in Genesis 18.4, what would our answer be to God's question that he poses? He says, is anything too hard for our Lord? There's a church in town that has signs everywhere that says, nothing is too hard for God. I totally agree. I just want you to know that. I totally agree. They're everywhere. I saw, it was like, I saw a front yard that had like all these you know, running for office signs in it, and then it had a little sign that said, nothing's too hard for God, dot org, or whatever it was. It was it, it, they're everywhere. And I was thinking about this, because the whole point here in Genesis 18 is, God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Do we really trust his promises? Do we waver concerning the promises? Our God is great, and there's no other like him. Turn to Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. This verse is huge. Isaiah 46 Verses 9 through 10. Here we see God uh, revealing something to us. And it's interesting, it's in a section where he's talking about who the true God is, being himself, and he's, and he's referring to, uh, um, he's addressing the idols of Babylon, um, which is very appropriate to what we're talking about. And he says in verse 9, Isaiah 46, verse 9 through verse 10, he says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. God is communicating to us in Isaiah 46 here. He's saying, I'm God. There's no one like me. So when I make a promise, it's a big deal because I will accomplish all my purpose. This should be encouraging to us when we're wondering, man, what's going on in the world? What's happening? You know, my life shambles, whatever. God says, I 
will accomplish all of my purpose. Nothing will unseat him. Nothing will make him change his mind. Nothing will make him reevaluate his purpose as it existed from uh, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. He exists outside of time. And he's saying my purposes existed outside of time. So your existence is within the realm of time. But my purpose existed before that existed. And I'm God and there's none like me. He's over... Uh, all other kings, he's over all rulers, and in the story of the Exodus, it's interesting, we see a contrast, a purposeful contrast between Pharaoh and God. It was funny because uh, this really came to real fruition for me when we were working with the kids over at the park. I, I just won't ever forget it. It was cool because when we were doing the, uh, the family summer club stuff over at the park, and we're looking at the Exodus story, we're looking at Pharaoh, we're looking at God, these contrasts that were drawn were amazing because Pharaoh continues to make promises. Over and over again, Pharaoh would make promises, and he would break them. While God, who's like no other, and there's none like him, always keeps his promises. As the kids left that week, at least in my little small group, the main thing that we focused on was God always keeps his promises. It's a big deal. He's not like kings of earth and, and lowercase k kings. He is the king of kings. God will accomplish all of his purposes. Here's the deal. His purposes are revealed in his promises. This is why being a child of the promise is important. God's purposes, what he's going to do, what he is certain to accomplish, are revealed in what he promises his children. So the big question that we have to ask, are as children of the promise who are fueled by the promises of God are, what are the promises of God? What are they? Like really, uh, are we familiar with them is what I'm getting at. If I was to give you a sheet of paper and say, please write out the promises of God that you know, what would you write? What would come up? This is, um, this is something we have to be serious about. We have to be realistic about the promises of God because this is the thing. As children of the promise, it is very backwards to say that we're fueled by the promises of God and then reveal that we're not even familiar with the promises of God. Does that make sense? As children of God, children of the promise... It's totally backwards and totally hypocritical for us to say, I am fueled at the fact that I have a God who keeps his promises. And those promises fuel me as a child of God. And if someone will say, what are the promises? If we don't know, that's totally backwards. It's backwards if we're not familiar with the promises of God. And if we do not take the time to become familiar with the promises of God and how the children of the promise are supposed to live, what we're really revealing is that we're not all that interested in the God of the promises. It's just talk. It's just empty words. It's silly. It's foolishness. If we don't know what God's promises are, it's interesting, we're not much different than the Jews and what they were guilty of with the law. They were all about the law, all about what was going on with the law, the, the effects of the law, um, what, the law, what they thought the law was accomplishing. And what they revealed was there was not as much interest in the God who, who put these things in place. And that's what the law revealed. It revealed our sin. It revealed our weakness. We're no different if we talk about these promises of God and the plan of God and the will of God and the purposes of God, we're no different and we're no less guilty than they were if we have no clue what we're actually talking about, the substance of it. We do that a lot. Like We talk about God's love. Like God is so loving. What does that mean? Can you give examples of God's love? Can you take me to Scripture and show me what His love does? What, what, what is, how did he show his love and what people was his love communicated through? Where his, was his love communicated through? That's probably not right. But um, this picture that we must actually know what we're talking about. Sometimes as Christians, we're guilty of talking in big themes. Does that make sense? I'm really wanting to get to the heart of the matter that when we're communicating with a lost world, they don't care about just themes and concepts. There, there's real promises and these promises really fuel the children of the promise. And so I want us to become familiar with them more and more. Interestingly, uh, this, is, this is interesting. I was thinking about this afternoon. Any counseling that I've done, any counsel that I've provided for someone, usually if so, someone's, maybe it's a crisis situation, maybe it's a big decision that someone's working through, and they come for some kind of counsel or whatever, usually counseling consists of just reminding someone what God's promises are in large part. When someone comes and says, what about this? What should I do this? You remind them of God's plan, God's purpose, God's will, as he has communicated it through his promises, through the promised child of Isaac. And, and you remind them of that, um, uh, further reminding them that he will accomplish all of his purposes. And I've also found that when I myself 
need counsel, when I'm in a situation where uh, I'm not sure what to do, I'm not sure what direction to go, or it feels like a crisis, I feel like the world's caving in around me, maybe I'm battling depression, whatever it might be, I found that when I'm in that place, it's almost inevitable that I'm needing someone to remind me of God's promises. I'm needing someone to remind me that God is still on his throne, that God has a purpose that has existed from before time, and it exists outside of time, and he will accomplish all of his purpose. Uh, in Second Peter 1.13, when we do that, when we tell someone uh, God's promises, when someone needs counsel, needs encouragement, needs direction, and we remind them of the promises of God, what's, it says in Second Peter, that's called stirring one another up by way of reminder. That's something that the people of God do. The people of God are a people who stir one another up by way of reminder. Now, you can see the problem that comes in. If we don't know God's promises, how do we stir one another up by way of reminder? What encouragement do we have? Have you ever seen someone give really horrible encouragement? Like someone's having just a, a meltdown, having a hard time, and you chuck them on the shoulder and just, just keep your head up, man. It's okay. It's all going to be good. That's horrible encouragement. If that's all you got for someone, just keep your mouth shut. It's, that's not good. Now, however, um, if you know promises of God, that's great encouragement. That's great counsel. And that's great guiding, great wisdom insight. Turn to that Second Peter passage, Second Peter 1. And as you're turning there, I want you all to know that tonight, in a sense, it feels like a bit of an introduction because we're talking about being children of the promise. We're talking about what these promises are. And ultimately, all throughout all of Scripture, we, we learn them and we become familiar with them. And, and that affects who we are. You know, as we study the Word, we observe and we observe and we observe and we observe. Then we interpret and then we apply. And that application becomes it's a part of who we are and what we do. And tonight feels like a little bit of an introduction to being children of the promise, because as we talk from here on out, that's what we're talking about. So if it seems like vague, the whole point is it's not vague. It's about to get very, very particular here in this study and then as we continue in the weeks to come. The second Peter 1 says this um, in verse, uh, let's just start at verse 4. Or no, Second Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We could spend all night picking that phrase apart. I'll read it again. His divine power has granted to us all, children of the promise, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his very his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, because of the promises that he's given us, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. The points that we're seeing here in, in verse 4 it tells us that it's through God's promises. Again, as children of the promise, when we see anything in Scripture about God's promises, we need to grab onto it, hold onto it, try and understand it, try and figure out what He's communicating, what He wants us to know through it, and, and, and go with it. So that's what we're going to do here. Second Peter 1, verse 4, tells us that it's through His promises, through God's promises, which we can trace all the way back through Isaac, because he's the child of the promise, that it's through His promises that we will become partakers of, of the divine nature. What does that mean? Does anybody have thoughts? Let's just talk that out. Partakers of the divine nature. Put that in your own words. 
Because these are the things we're holding on to. And if we can't, you know, understand them, there's no point in even moving to the next one. Partakers of the divine nature. Yeah? And how would that affect us? Yeah, developing holiness. And what is holiness? Becoming Christ-like? Co-heirs with Christ, yes. Partakers of the divine nature. Why is it divine? What's the opposite of the divine nature? Yeah, the flesh, sinful, worldly nature. Partakers of the divine nature is a whole, a whole other thing altogether. And so we're seeing co-heirs with Christ, partakers of the divine nature, holiness, set apart, Christ-like. And it's, and it's ha- how, how does that happen? Through what? The promise. Yes, yes. Usually that's going to be the answer. From all the questions that I ask from here on out, the promise is the answer. God, Jesus, church, deacons, I don't know. Um, uh, it also says that uh, through his promises that we have escaped the corruption. What's that? Yes, the corrosive nature of sin. Anyone else, did anyone else escape corruption? Big figure. We'll come back to that. Um, escaping corruption. D- delivery from sin. Um, the, the sin is something that uh, it will rule over us, and the only way for it not to rule over us and for it not to totally kill us and lead to eternal death is what? Jesus. Yes, yes, Sunday school answer. Beautiful. Okay, and so it's because of these promises also that we're to make every effort to supplement our faith. What does it mean to supplement our faith? Are we adding to our faith? Feed it? Are we making it better? Strengthen? We're not making it better. Like when we supplement our faith, we're not saying, God's given me faith and what I will do is that faith is not good enough, so I'll supplement it with virtue and knowledge and self-control, all these things. No. To supplement our faith, here what we're seeing is that we're to make, it says make every effort for these things to happen. It's interesting because like, for instance, what is self-control? How's that defined in Galatians? A fruit of the what? Fruit of the Spirit. So this is what God is doing. And so as God has done this, it's through his promise that we're to make every effort to supplement our faith with all these things. uh, Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection. If these qualities are yours and are increasing... That's part of the supplementing. They're increasing. You're growing in those things. You're not doing something outside of faith. It's part of the faithfulness. Um, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As children of the promise, we're not designed to be ineffective and unfruitful. And so it's the very promise that comes from God that we cling to, that fuels our lives, that would make us make every effort to supplement our faith. And then in verse 12, Peter stirs us up by way of reminder of these qualities. He tells us all these things. Uh, that are birthed from the, from the promises. So in fact, he's reminding us of the promise and not just the qualities. Does that make sense? All those things, self-control, virtue, knowledge, brotherly affection, we trace those back through the promise and anything we come bring back to the promise leads to who? God. That's really important. It's not just about the promise. It's not just about Isaac. It's not just about Ishmael. It's not just about the law. It's all about God. So, He's reminding us of the promises. So I want to look at a few more examples of guys who are going to share the gospel. And it's all about promises. It's all about God's promises that we should be very, very familiar with. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts is uh, really just full of examples. Acts chapter 7, deacon extraordinaire, Stephen. Here, what's happened in in the end of verse 6, they've chosen 7 to serve uh, as these deacons. And look at 6-8. We'll just read through this because it's it's so beautiful. In 6-8 it says, And Stephen, full of grace, deacon extraordinaire and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, and of those... Um, from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So they didn't agree with what Stephen was doing and the things he was saying, the things he was doing, uh, the wonders, the signs. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now what can we trace the wisdom that he has and the spirit that he has back to? 
trace it back to God who gave us the promises. Yes, he would not have any wisdom. He would not have any ability. Uh, any, he would not have the spirit. The spirit comes by the promise. Um, if not for the promise, and we trace that back to the promise, and we trace the promise back to God. It's all about God. All about God. Then, those who disagreed with him, those who didn't like what he was doing, like what he was saying, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So he's proclaiming the truth about who? God. And particularly this other guy who just stirred everything up. That whole cross thing. Jesus. Yeah, he's talking about Jesus. And they're saying, no, he's talking bad about Moses and God. And they stirred up, in verse 12, the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came, up, uh, they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. So this is serious. He's before the elders, the scribes, the council. And they set up false witnesses. They, they, just, they would set him up. They would get some false witnesses and just let them do their thing. It was very, uh, very corrupt. Uh, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, crazy talk, will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So we see here, Stephen is standing before the elders, the scribes, and the council, and he's been asked, are you really saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses and do away with law? Are you really saying that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is doing that? Because that's, if that's what you're saying, Stephen, we're not tracking with you. Are, is this what's really happening? And so he's given a chance to, ex, to express what he is saying. And if you have never read through all of Acts 7, it's beautiful. We're not going to read it. It'd take me about 10 minutes to do so. But it is so beautiful because it goes back to the beginning and it shows God's purpose and God's plan through all the Old Testament, up to Jesus, and the purpose that he has eternally. And it is masterfully communicated in Acts chapter 7. And so it's interesting because just right there at the beginning, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. We've studied that in Genesis. We've been studying that in the past few weeks. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. What's another way of saying land of the Chaldeans or of the Chaldeans? The Babylon? And, uh, and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which you are now living. You, Israelites, this is where you're living, and you're living in this promised land. And so this, this, what's going on with you right now is totally connected to Abraham and the promises that were there. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised. Here's that promise thing again. He promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Uh, verse 17, uh, skip over to verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So what was the promise? I will bless you and I'll multiply you. And then we hear Stephen talking about the promise. And then you get to verse 51. You turn the page if you're in ESV. Verse 51, what's happening here before I read verse 51 is Stephen is proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's news and it's good. It's good news. Here, they don't see it so much, but it's good news. He's doing what we call proclaiming the gospel. He's sharing the truth about Jesus with them. And at the end, what he does, he's, he's and sharing the truth about Jesus, for them to really understand the significance of Jesus, he has to share about the promises of God. You cannot understand the significance of Jesus apart from the promises of God. Specifically, the promises through Abraham, through Isaac, 14 generations, 14 more generations, 14 more generations, we get to Jesus. We cannot remove the promises of God from the truth about Jesus. So if we want to have any understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus whatsoever, we must be familiar with these promises. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uh-oh, uncircumcised in heart and ears, which was the point, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. 
capitalized, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. We're talking about Jesus. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is him sharing the gospel. Verse 51, Stephen cuts to the heart of the matter that they were so focused on the flesh, they were so focused on the law, that they betrayed and murdered the child of the promise, Jesus. Turn to, like, keep your finger right there in, in Acts and just turn over to Matthew 1. Like, it's, it's not a stretch to try and connect Jesus to Abraham and the promises. It's, it's very clear in Scripture. This is Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the proclamation of Jesus. And it says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. It is necessary, if we're going to grasp the gospel at all, to understand Jesus is son of Abraham. And these promises that are equated to Abraham and Isaac have everything to do with our life in Christ as children of the promise. So, uh, so he says, you stiff-necked people, you murdered the people who talked about Jesus. When Jesus got here, you were so involved with the law and the flesh that you murdered the child of the promise, Jesus. You betrayed him and you murdered him. And it's pretty obvious what's going to happen to Stephen. I mean, he's like painting his own, he's kind of drawing out his own ending. It's kind of like you murdered the people who talked about Jesus beforehand. You murdered Jesus, and I'm here talking to you about Jesus right now after the fact. And what happens? They kill him. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, stones flying, hitting him because he's telling the beautiful truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He falls to his knees. The stones are hitting him, cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. He passed away. But not eternal death. He has eternal life, not eternal death. So it says he fell asleep. Now, I want us to see he's sharing the truth of the gospel before the scribes, before the elders, before the council. It's very important. important. And he, in sharing the truth of the gospel, he must connect um, this mindset of these Jews to the promises that were to Abraham and to Isaac. They had to see the promises because they had to see those promises fulfilled in Jesus. Now, it's interesting who was the guy that approved of it? Saul, right? Now, in Acts 9, it's interesting, um, just a little bit over, Acts chapter 9, uh, Saul is wanting to bring back from the synagogues of Damascus. Like, in the synagogues, there's this talk about Jesus, and that's a problem. And Saul, who is not buying into this crazy Jesus talk, is wanting to go to the synagogues in Damascus. He got permission from the authorities to go to the synagogues in Damascus. And any others like Stephen who believe this crazy talk about Jesus... Uh, being the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, he wanted to bind them and bring them back. Verses 3 through 16 say, Now he went on his way, he approached, and he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. It goes on to say that he went, a guy named Ananias went, because the Lord Jesus told Ananias, go for Paul, Saul at this point, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's so interesting because he's wanting to bring back these crazy talk people of Jesus. He's struck blind. Uh, on his way, um, and he hears a voice that says, guess who? Jesus. Yeah, that's right. I'm not dead. I'm alive. And I'm here striking you blind because you're persecuting me. This is huge. Like, this isn't a fairy tale. A lot of times we see, you know, someone on a road being struck blind. We see it as like a fairy tale in a far, far away land long, long ago. It's not a fairy tale. It really happened. Jesus, who was not dead, came to Paul, who was a persecutor of people who believed that the promises were fulfilled in Jesus, and said, Saul, 
what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And he, said, he knows it's the Lord. He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, oh, who are you, Lord? Jesus. This is like a bad game of lights out. Guess who? Jesus. It's, it's going to be terrifying to Saul. In verse 15, interestingly, now Saul's going to be an instrument in communicating the promises. Saul is going to be an instrument in communicating the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. It has everything to do with Jesus. And verse 20 through 22, look at this. Just right after that. And immediately, he didn't waste any time, kind of like Abraham waking up early in the morning to be obedient. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, the very synagogues that he was going to to collect the crazy Jesus talk people. Immediately, he's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Trust me, he struck me blind, I promise. He's the Son of God. He's not dead. I heard his voice. It's crazy. And now I can see, now I'm talking about him. He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, Jesus, that he's proclaiming? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You skip ahead to chapter 13 in the same book of Acts, and we see uh, Paul, uh, Saul, it's a still point, he gets a name change here in the midst of everything, Paul and, uh, and Barnabas in chapter 13. So now Jesus has said, oh yeah, the promises are fulfilled in me. I'm not dead. I'm very much alive, and I'm going to use you as an instrument to communicate the promises that are fulfilled in me, Jesus. You skip to chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are going from one synagogue to the other telling people about Jesus. It's interesting because all we ever hear about Barnabas, he gets a bad rap. We hear that he just disagreed with Paul and they split ways. We don't know anything else about Barnabas. And I was reading today, I was like, man, he communicated some really great stuff with, with Paul. And so it says in verses 23 through 33 in chapter 13, um, it says, it's beautiful. Uh, he's talking about uh, the king, uh, man of the tribe of Benjamin. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be the king. Uh, of whom testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The promise has everything to do with Jesus. And so here in 23 through 33, verse 23, Jesus is who was actually promised. And, And go back to the beginning, go back to in Genesis when God says, I will bless you, I will multiply you. It's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. That promise was Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so from here on out, anytime we see Israel, anytime we see the promises of God, the covenants, all these different things, the life of Moses, it's all about Jesus. That's who was actually promised here. Verse 23, Jesus was actually promised. And then he goes on to say, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, Jesus, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. He's going right back to it. He's saying this gospel is all about you. And let's go back to Abraham, the people of Israel, the children of the promise. And those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation, these promises, the salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So he's saying every Sabbath in the, uh, in the, uh, those who live in Jerusalem did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophecies which read every Sabbath fulfilled him by condemning him. Every Sabbath, you guys get together, you read about these prophecies, and not only did you miss the part that Jesus was fulfilling all of them, you even missed the part about you condemning Jesus. He's like, you've been hearing the story the whole time. But as children of flesh, you're not clinging to these promises, and you've missed it. And he goes on to say, and though they found him, uh, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, when they had finished fulfilling the promises, that makes it totally obvious that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the promised offspring. When they had carried out uh, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, this this is what gets me. People are like, oh, there's no way that really happens. just a uh, conspiracy theory. For many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. There's lots of people. I mean, if I was to ask you, how many people does it take to, to, to be able to say that something's true? How many witnesses do you need? Well, how about hundreds over the course of many days? 
Jesus was alive. He wasn't dead. It's very, very, very real. And verse 32, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The promises are fulfilled in Jesus and his resurrection. So uh, Jesus changes everything. It's not your connection to Isaac or Ishmael that makes you a child of God. It's your connection to Christ. So interestingly, what is the resolution or the, what is the solution to the turmoil and division that exists between Jews and Muslims? Jesus. Yes. That's why we share the gospel. That's why we talk about Jesus. It's only in Jesus that these promises are, are fulfilled. And so that the uh, turmoil and division that exists there would be remedied in Jesus. So at any opportunity we get, whether we're talking to Jew, Muslim, Christian, unbeliever, whatever, Buddhist, whoever, the only way to bring it back to its right place is to tell them about Jesus. And to tell them rightly about Jesus is to tell them about the promises. So ever since the fall of the Garden of Eden, we're going to look at these promises, we have seen that God has a plan of redemption. He's redeeming a people, calling and drawing a people out of the world for his glory. These people that he's drawing to himself are the children of the promise. God's promises are laced throughout the scriptures, and we know that nothing's too hard for God, and he always keeps these promises. He's promised us that he will redeem a people for himself, and those people will receive an inheritance that was given to Abraham by a promise. So the children of the promise will one day fully receive an inheritance that was given to Abraham by a promise. The promise to his people is that he will bless and he will multiply them. And it's interesting, in Hebrews 6, we'll come back to this next week, or whenever, uh, next week I think. Uh, in Hebrews 6, God desires to convincingly show the children of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise. In Hebrews 6, God is going to, he, he gives an oath and he swears by his own name to show that by his unchangeable character, that the, the unchangeable character of the promises, because he wants to convincingly show the children of the promise that he never breaks his promise. And it's key because that says, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So God really wants to convince us, show us convincingly by swearing by his own name, the unchangeable character of his promises. And his promises, the big so that after his promises, are that we... Uh, who have fled for refuge, we who seek refuge, we who want to have salvation, we who want redemption, we who hope not to spend eternity in, in anywhere other than his presence, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. So here's the closing question that we'll close with, about five minutes. What is the hope that's set before us? These promises are leading us to, to this hope. He's encouraging us with these promises so that we might ha be strongly encouraged um, to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. So what's the hope that's set before us? Turn to 2 Peter 3.13. We're going to look at a couple different verses here in just a couple minutes. 2 Peter, we're looking at our hope. We're looking at these promises. And 2 Peter 3.13 says this. So we'll just look at each verse and what is the hope? What's the promise? But according to his promise which we can trace all the way back to Isaac, all the way back to Abraham, to God. But, according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what's the hope that's set before us according to the promise? New heavens and new earth. That's a big deal. That, that shouldn't be some far distant concept that's kind of just sometimes we think about it every now and again. We should eagerly anticipate that. A new heavens and a new earth. That's the promise. That's the hope that's set before us. In 2 Peter 3.13, this is when you'll need to write them down because we're going to go fast. Turn to 1 John 2. Just a page over, I think. 1 John 2, verses 22 through 25. <coughs> this is pretty strong. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And listen to the connection between the Son and the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now this is important because in John 8, Jesus says you must have the Son to get to the Father. And it's in abiding in the, son, the Word of the Son and the Word of God that you are freed. And these very arrogant um, uh, Israelites say, No, we've never been a slave to anyone because we are connected to Abraham. And what this is not saying, it's not saying whoever confesses Abraham has the Father. It's whoever confesses the Son. It's all about Jesus. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning, those promises, that history, all the things that happen abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the what? The promise that he made to us. And the promise is is what? Eternal life. This is beautiful. These promises, the promise of eternal life, the promise of a new heavens, the promise of a new earth, we're children of the promise. These should not be vague concepts to us. We should be familiar with them, with how how they're going to be brought in, with what God expects of us as children of the promise, because we're, in a sense, we're, we're, we're to be obedient, to glorify Him, is to bring that kingdom in, to share the gospel, to proclaim the truth of the gospel about Jesus, which has everything to do with the promises. So, um... Uh, this promise he has made to us is eternal life. Turn to James 1.12. If you don't want to turn there, you can just write it down. James 1.12, Brad has been uh, preaching on this, and um, it's another reminder that this is all very connected, and it's all connected in Jesus. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promise to those who love him. So to those who love him, what is the promise? The crown of life. These are promises that should excite us. James 2, 5, uh, just a little further down on the page. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So what's another promise to those who love him? Rich in? Yeah, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's a big deal. So um, in closing, what I'm wanting us to see here is that as we continue in our study of Genesis and other parts of our Old Testament, we will encounter people and events. This is where I was saying it kind of feels like uh, kind of a, we're just jumping into this. We're just starting to talk about what it means to be a child of the promise because we've got a lot to learn. And to be honest with you, it's not until these last probably five years I've really begun to study my Old Testament. And I felt even foolish trying to teach this tonight because I was like, man, I'm sharing stuff but I don't even know what I'm sharing. There's so much more to this. There's so much more to this. I feel like a fool, like I'm pointing to something like, this is great, but there's so much more to this, and we don't have time to talk about it, and I'm not knowledgeable enough to tell you about it because there's so much more to study in our Old Testament. But as we continue in our study of Genesis, we're going to encounter people, we're going to encounter scenarios, we're going to encounter events that will help us to understand the promises of God more fully. As we look at the life of the, the remainder of the life of Abraham, the life of Isaac, on in, we'll get into the further parts of Genesis and the Exodus. We're going to encounter these things so we can understand the promises of God more fully. We should embrace our Old Testaments and familiarize ourselves with the people of Israel so that we might better understand what it means to be children of the promise. Remember Romans 9 said God spoke to Israel in such a way that every mouth would be stopped and the whole world would be held accountable to him. We need to be familiar with Israel so that we can better understand what it means to be children of the promise. Romans 15, verse 4. It's a great verse to memorize. Romans 15, verse 4, if you're close there, you can turn over to it. It says, whatever was written in former days, whatever, whatever was written in former days, all this that's real important, breathed out word of God, was written for our instruction as children of the promise, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Again, we just talked about our hope, that unfading crown, that eternal, uh, uh, eternal dwelling, the new heavens, the new earth. Um, as we see other children of the promise in different generations, I hope that we can learn from the way they live as sojourners on this earth, knowing that a new heaven and a new earth await. What has been written should give us hope of an unfading crown in the presence of a holy God in which righteousness dwells, having received eternal life, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom. These are all promises that we're going to become more and more acquainted with. And it's, it's cool because we see this process of redemption and it all has to do with the promises that were given to Isaac, to Abraham and Isaac. And it's cool in Revelation 18 at the end of all this, God, we hear God saying, come out of her, my people. And he's calling his people out of the world and into an eternal kingdom. And we see this beautiful fulfillment of the, of the promises. And so that, that goes back to don't focus on the things of the world. Last week we studied, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the world. Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. And so one day we'll hear those words, come out of her, my people, where God is drawing out the finality of those children of the promise, that offspring of Isaac, the offspring of Abraham, uh, who are his people. Um, and again, it just feels like we're just getting into it. I'm really excited about the coming weeks because there's a, so much more to study in this. And next week in particular, we're going to look at 
um, Abraham has an encounter with Abimelech, and we're going to see how particularly a child of the promise deals with uh, frustration, financial burden, uh, unexpected loss, um, and dealing with authority. It's a really cool picture that we're going to engage there. So are there any questions or thoughts or comments? Yeah. 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 Yeah, if we just jump in at the Jesus part, we think that like the promises begin with him, the promises are fulfilled. So there's all this part before that like you said Paul totally got. And I'll be honest, a few years ago when I was reading through the, like, the Passover stuff, I was like, oh, a lamb without blemish, no bone broken, fully consumed in his first year. I get it. It has everything to do with Jesus. Like, I just felt so dumb because most of my life it was all New Testament, not realizing, man, this Old Testament was such a richer, more robust, beautiful picture of what it means to be a child of the promise. That's spot on. And I'm still jealous of it. I'm still yearning for it. I want to understand it more because every time I look at it, I'm just like, you read through the prophets and you see all this about the root of Jesse and, you know, lineage of the king of David and from this city. And it's just like, man, this has Jesus written all over it. And I don't even almost know how deep it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was talking to Ben a couple weeks ago, and I was like, I was, I'm so jealous of that first Jewish individual who heard about Jesus and was like, no way! You've got to be kidding me! He's here? That, that makes perfect sense! Oh, man, I've been learning this my whole life, and I can trace it all the way back and call the way up. I'm so jealous of that first like aha moment, you know, that was ever experienced by the one who had the background and the heritage and the understanding of the Old Testament and then realizing, oh, Jesus is the beautiful fulfillment of this. And then just that wholehearted, think about what their hearts must have done, just that wholehearted surrender like, oh man, that is fuel for a child of the promise. And so for me, I'm like trying to retroact that and say, I believe fully in Jesus. I, I need not be more convinced, but I know that there's a lot more convincing there's a lot more understanding that will help me be fueled in that way. I, I, yeah, totally agree with you. Any other comments or thoughts? Or, you know? Cool. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. God, I feel so unfamiliar with them, and we should be very familiar with them. We should be excited about them when we're living in this world as sojourners, as people who are living in tents and, and, and know that this is not our home and, and we're living for a kingdom to come that's eternal. We know that our time here is so fleeting. It's just blink of an eye the, and a single breath. It's, it's all going to be gone. And on the big picture, it's just snap of a finger. It was nothing as far as this eternal perspective goes. And so God, I don't want us to view our time here as nothing necessarily, but I pray that we would view our time here with an eternal kingdom perspective. I pray that every decision we make, we would make rightly understanding that we're children of the promise and that you have an eternal plan and that if our decisions and the way that we're acting, talking, using our resources, spending our time, whatever it is, if it doesn't have a kingdom perspective, I pray that we would repent of our sin. God, as we continue to study Genesis, I'm very excited about learning more about what it means to be children of the promise, learning what it means to be your followers, your disciples, and I pray that you would give us wisdom, discernment, insight, all the things that we would not have without you. Uh, we, we pray for that as we continue to study. Lord, I thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, all these promises were fulfilled and realized fully, and that the Old Testament uh, 
um, the sacrificial system and the law and all those things that came into play, we know that they were all a tutor. They were all a foreshadowing of realizing Jesus. And it's all about Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see the promises. We can trace it all back to Isaac and Abraham, and it leads us straight to you. And God, our lives are all about you. They're not about us. They're not about any person here, any person in our lineage or genealogy. We see from this that our faithfulness doesn't have anything necessarily to do. We can't use our dad's faithfulness or Abraham's faithfulness or anyone else's faithfulness or Moses or anyone, but it's about a relationship with, with Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen that in each of us. And as we leave here, I pray that we would continue to share the gospel. I've been so encouraged this week, God, as I've heard about conversations going on at the workplace and at schools and in homes that have everything to do about expressing the truth about Jesus and how it has everything to do with our lives today. It's not some far distant theme that is disconnected from our lives. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.